Today's scripture reading is from the book of Judges, chapter 19, starting in verse 22. For those of you who know the book of Judges, this is towards the end of it, so it gets to be gruesome texts. Um, This is uh, one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, Um, but it's uh, an important one to be aware of. Judges 19, starting verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do, what you, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as they began to break, and as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell fell down at the door of the man's house, where her master was, until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Keith, I think when you said this is the word of the Lord, one person said thanks be to God. Uh, you warned us to disturb one of the most disturbing portions of Scripture in, in all of the Bible. Uh, before we dive into that, I just want to say how blessed I, I uh, was just a few minutes ago to see um, uh, Jim and Daniel up here leading worship. Uh, you got to remember these things in church. I'm, my experience, of course, when I was youth pastor years ago here, quite some time ago, uh, and Daniel was here. He was much shorter than he is now. And uh, and just such a blessing to, to see you both and to hear you doing such a fantastic job. So thank you. Uh, we've been taking up this series that we've called From Genesis to Nazareth. This sermon today we're calling Sin and Wrongdoing Part 2. Uh, the story of sin and wrongdoing could have endless sequels, but we're just going to end with two. When I look at texts like this, I sometimes think of a writer that I, I really enjoy. I discovered her, of course, through professors telling me to read her short stories when I was at Regent College. 
Her name's Flannery O'Connor, and she was writing in the 1950s in the, in the American South. And it, what, if you can't read that, what it says is, that, well, she wrote these stories that were violent, um, quite offensive in many ways, and she was this young Catholic woman. She died at a young age. Um, but uh, she was a world-renowned writer and still is. The best writers in the world, Christian or not, all know who Flannery O'Connor is. Uh, and her, her writing was such that one of the critics of the time said, is this really the work of an unaided young lady? Because there would be these uh, heinous acts in her work. She was accused of writing horror stories as if they had no value. Uh, and she responded to her critics and said, no, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see what the real horror is. And it's not my stories. She said, for the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large figures. So her stories were intentionally jarring. We come to a text today, the end of the book of Judges, that is jarring. I don't know if it's intentionally so, but it does help you to remember that when you read Scripture, you need to read with your mind. You can't go to the Bible and just assume that you're reading something and that means that God sanctions this one thing or this other thing. Uh, the way that we use Scripture matters. You should become a student of Scripture. Uh, there's a, an individual here, and I won't uh, call the person out, maybe one, one uh, hopefully more than one person, but I know this week there's someone who's part of this congregation who just finished a, a Scripture reading plan, a track plan. You know, you check off the box each day, and it has now finished the entire Bible, read every, every word, which means that person read this story at some point in the last number of months. I promise that the brief and occasional series, at least has two, somebody said to me, um, just, well, it was Corrine, somebody, I was sitting here, Corrine was talking to me, and as the scripture was being read, she said, what, wasn't Tierney available for a reading today? Because Tierney always gets the tough readings. Um, but I promise that uh, the brief and occasional series, which makes you go when you read scripture, whether it's the, the woman hitting the man with his sandal, or a text like this, the series that I could call, Did, Did I Need to Hear That in Church?, will, for the most part, end today. And if you bring people during Advent, we won't read these scriptures. Don't worry about it. Sin and wrongdoing, part two. Why would this story be in the Bible, and what possible meaning is there in it for us? I intend, again, as, I'll, as I've done uh, often through this series, not to unpack every detail of this story and give you a synopsis of the book of Judges. I want to take this story and look at larger Christian theological concepts as they matter to us. And today is to look at sin and wrongdoing. But this question it remains, how bad can things get? Would you ask that at this time of the story that we read or ask that now? This story takes place toward the end of the book of Judges, and the book of Judges has through it a thread. That thread is the line that occurs early and often. In those days there was no king, so in other words, no government, but no king, and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. It was rather a situation of, of anarchy. There was at various points in the book of Judges no effective government, no police force, a weak system of justice, if a system of justice at all. And that's why the book is called Judges, because things would go terrible. There'd be all kinds of moral failure and difficulty and trouble. People would forget God, and then uh, they would fall into all kinds of judgment. But remember, one of the key ways to think about judgment is the consequence of such behavior. 
And so their lives and, and the place would fall apart, and often uh, another uh, nation would come and occupy them, and they would cry out to God, and God would raise up what? A judge, which is akin to a leader. Uh, Samson's one of them. Some of these judges aren't that great of, in terms of their behavior either. Gideon's another. And this story happens toward the end. I'm interested in the story so that we could move past some of our ways of thinking about sin that can trip us up and can lead us to be content with an understanding of sin and wrongdoing that I still see today, sometimes feel myself, but that I would describe as less than Christian. I think that often we operate as Christian believers with a concept of sin that is stunted and still primitive and actually quite destructive in the world in which we live. So here's what I hope to do to give a Christian view, what I'm calling a Christian view of sin and virtue. The first concept that I want to lead you through is to bring you past the concept that there's anything that we could call good old days. I also want to help you to realize that that the other side of that coin is to think, well, we're about to make things a lot better. These dividing lines can often be based on age. I could probably do a quick survey here and find out who's going to say good old days and who's going to say, nope, things are about to get a lot better based on age. The interesting thing for some of us to remember as we get older is that that's what older people when we were young used to say too, the good old days. In understanding the concept of sin, we have to get past the idea that there are good old days or this wonderful bright future based on human potential. Secondly, I want to get past the idea that I'm calling uh, disconnected virtue. The idea in the Christian faith that virtue can be disconnected either from Jesus Christ or from expression of love to one another. We'll get into that. And then thirdly, I want to consider the call that is upon our lives to live lives of goodness and holiness and to understand that this call in the Christian life, and it always is thus, so you can never become self-congratulatory. The call in the Christian life is impossible, but compulsory. It's impossible, but compulsory. So the text, how does it read? I mentioned already that it was a time of uh, quite a bit of savagery. I'll get you back to something you don't have to look at that. Um, It's a time of tribalism and, and savagery, lack of state institutions, you couldn't call the police when something was happening. Uh, and, of course, we, we, we remember today because we think, well, now so, things are so much better because now you can call the police. But depending on what kind of person you are and, what kind, and like even just race and what country you live in, calling the authorities isn't always that helpful. Our concept of, you know, things are so good now is different if we just consider other people might not feel the same thing. There is a man and his wife, well, more properly called his concubine, There are no reliable hotels, and this individual is traveling with this, well, these two people at least are traveling. It's a different time. And this is the whole chapter of Judges, including the section that we didn't read. Uh, They're they're in a place where they're supposed to stay for a set amount of time, and and the people hosting them there say, no, you need to stay another day, another day, another day. The text kind of goes through this. And then they get to the place just before where we read where this man, this traveler then, 
goes to the goes to a city square, town square, because as they say, there aren't any hotels. So what would happen is someone who would want to uh, practice and exercise hospitality would see, see a traveler or a visitor in the center of, of the village and say, why don't you come and stay with me? No computer, no travel agent, no you know, uh, online reviews. This encounter happens where this older gentleman asks this man or says, you can come and stay with me. You don't have to stay here outside. And that's when things soon after turn bad. There's this gang of thugs and this brutal demand. It's actually, the text is even harsher than what Keith read. And some of you, I can't remember which one is in the bulletins. Is it different than Keith read? Yeah, so there it doesn't, it doesn't have the flowery language. You know, send out, send out this man so that we can know him. That sounds kind of nice. It's send out this man so that we can have sex with him. But it's even more brutal than that. So that we can have our way with him. And the host, the man says, you can't do this brutal thing. But then there is this, what is, well, I I, I think it might be the most troubling thing until you get to the end of the text. But it certainly is very troubling that this man who's hosting this traveler says, I couldn't do such a heinous thing as send out the one that I'm hosting here. But you can take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine and you can abuse them like you wish. If there are good old days, these aren't them. And that's what happens. There is in this text a terrible, primitive concept of male and female. Don't think otherwise. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way Jesus Christ taught us to live or demonstrated in his own life. By the way, and, and I love the Word of God, and I believe this is, in the, this is the inspired Word of God, but I worship Jesus Christ. There's a fine line, there's a difference. If you start worshiping the Bible instead of Jesus, you can improperly use texts like this because you could read this text without the example of Jesus Christ. So these terrible things happen. and The brutality goes up another step as the man comes back and sees this woman and he tries to lift her up off the ground and clearly what the text is implying is that she has died. And then this, like this is like one of those terrible shows, I don't know, not to make a value statement on whether the show is good or bad narratively, but those shows that have these kind of psychotic type things that people can be drawn to. The man takes this woman's body, cuts it up into this, I mean, no Sunday school story has ever done Judges 19. There's no flannel graph of this. Though the kids would love it at a certain age. Cuts up her body into 12 pieces and sends the pieces to the 12 tribes. And then asks this question. What's the question? Has anything ever been this bad before? Things are so terrible right now. Now, if you feel that, I don't think you feel that as much as this man did. So let me walk you through these concepts. Firstly, well, I'll I'll enter this a nicer, easier way. Uh, My brother-in-law, and he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He really is a great guy. But on some things, he's just wrong. (laughs) Um, One of them is that, and he's substantially older than me. I won't hold that against him. 
And he is a sports fan, but not as much now as he used to be. You find this with some people. And he used to be more of a hockey fan. And he says now, this is a few years ago, I remember this conversation with him. He says, well, I'm not really watching hockey much anymore. It's not as good as it used to be. Right? And then I say, what do you mean? Well, it used to be so much better. The players were so much more skilled. And I say, are you kidding me? It's faster now. They're bigger now. You can't even skate with the... You've got to move that puck fast, way faster than you ever could. If you tried to skate around like Bobby Orr now, you'd make it about four steps. So it's not that it used to be better. It's different. You could argue it. But one of the things that's happening, I used the nice innocuous example for this. He loved it when he was of a particular age at a very formative time in his life And so he identifies with that then much more so than he does now. We take that with the value judgments on the whole world. I guarantee you, or virtually, I could make this, take this risk, that the time that you see as the best time is the time of your most formative years. When things were easier, when things were better. Can I please take a a, a presumption that you're making off of you and say, that's what everybody does. It doesn't make it necessarily true. What about with morality and sin and the way that things are in the world? There are no good old days. And, and the way to, to point this out is to say, which era in history would you choose if not now? The 1960s? Oh, no, the 1960s. The 50s, maybe? Sometimes it's a very, very small window. And often I could tell you that that small window is when you thought the world was much more innocent or whatever, things were just easier. But I also guarantee you at that same time there were people in the world for whom things were not fair, where some things that aren't allowed today were not only allowed but applauded back then. So I want to kind of take away this idea that the Christian call is to long for something that used to be. However, now this would be to those who are often, often to those who are younger. The converse is also true. The idea that in our human effort and with our human potential, we will usher in some kind of new golden age should be something that if you've lived for, you know, any amount of time and considered politics and the state of the world, you will have a more realistic view than from now on, after this happened, things are going to be so much better. What happens when a moral or political leader, sometimes after an election like we had this week, thanks be to God, we have, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a great thing, it honestly is. There are people in this room right now, I warned you about this last week, who are super, super happy about the results of the election last week. And there are people in this room who are like, oh no, from now on things are terrible. Right here. Which one's true? Let me put it this way. I want to say this clearly. Christians should not be in the business of historical better or worse. Christians do not long for a certain time that we make as humans. There is no ideal time, past, present, or future. In Christianity, the only ideal is Jesus Christ. In Christianity, the only ideal is Jesus Christ. 
And your responsibility as a Christian is to seek after Jesus Christ and long to live in the light of what he's done for you, whichever era you happen to live in. And whatever you think of the times. Because it will be either this, a dismissive and cynical hatred. Now, is, I mean, and if you're caught in this, I just want to, I don't want to accuse you. I want to help you feel free. If you're caught in this, oh, today, these days, do you see how that is going to prevent you from seeing the power, promise, and salvation of Jesus Christ? Also, if you're caught in, thank goodness for us, and we're going to usher in this golden age. Well, Augustine, you know, many, many centuries ago, had a word for this when he talked about uh, thinking that we can create something as humans that has ultimate value. He called it a cruel optimism. If you put your hope in, and the Bible has a word for it, if you put your hope in princes, people, governments, whatever it is, this is a cruel optimism because you will inevitably be disappointed. In Christian faith, the ideal time is not before and not later in human effort. There is no ideal time. There is only an ideal Savior. And he saves in the darkest of all times. This is true when we're thinking about communities or nations or schools or churches. Jesus Christ doesn't take on the official position of the head of any of these things. What I mean is like, he's not actually the pastor of this one church. He's not the leader or principal of this one school. He's not the prime minister of this one place. And any human endeavor to make him so inevitably ends in failure and often ends in violence. Because what happens is we act historically as if we know better and we're going to bring in the golden age and here we're kind of tagging Jesus along with us. He is none of these things. He is the Lord of all, compassionate and merciful. It's not a church or a school or a company or an organization or an era that will save the world. It is Jesus Christ our Lord. We should not be surprised by the human propensity to sin. And we should have about us, even as we're positive about salvation in Jesus Christ, we also have a necessary pessimism about human potential. You rarely get peace without pessimism. This kind of pessimism. I don't think we're going to treat one another well unless we put some rules in effect here. But our hope isn't in the rules. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Secondly, what I've called disconnected virtue, or another way of putting it is I call it the invention of kindness. I don't want to imply that Jesus Christ is the first kind person. I'm not uh, academically naive like that. But in our world today, 2015, and, and many of you live with this, and sometimes the younger people can feel it even more, there is this general concept that if we just remove religion, then everything will be okay. So if we move religion, all we'll have left is love and value for one another and human rights and whatever else it is, right? But the history of the Western world is that many of these virtues come from an understanding of Jesus Christ. Where does the concept of non-judgmentalism come from? I mean, it is, it is an indictment upon much of the history of the church that non-judgmentalism comes from Jesus Christ, who said, do not judge. And that churches can become sometimes the most judgmental of places. But if we disconnect virtue from Jesus Christ, we get into all kinds of trouble. People can reject Christianity as judgmental, mean, and harsh, and we can often see why. 
But listen to the words of Jesus, and if you just listen to them clearly and boldly, they are, in a way, I mean, according to the values of our world, they are still crazy words. Listen to what he says. Love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. Don't consider yourself first. Think of the other person before you think of yourself. I have some examples that I know from people in in my life that when I tell stories about how people have done this, thought about others before they think of themselves, even the, the strongest of Christians go, that's crazy. Give to those who ask. What? Go the extra mile. Do not judge. Because you see, everybody fails. Everyone fails. There's an idea floating around, and I don't mean to condemn you if you've said this. I've said it, and I know that in a way it's true, but we can hopefully mature past it. There's an idea floating around that all sin is equal. Uh, Nobody believes that. Nobody believes all sin is equal. Here's the evidence. Did you read the scripture thing this morning? If you thought all sin was equal, you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty bad cutting up a woman into 12 pieces, but, you know, I took a cookie and I lied about it. Same thing. No, not the same thing. Some sin is way, way worse than other sin. Does all sin have this impact of reminding us that we are imperfect before a perfect God? Yes, in that way. However, set against, and that's why set against the standard of Christ, everyone fails. One of the things that this story shows as we look at it is that, and and it's again Augustine who said this, that sin is the punishment of sin. Who in this story acts in in a laudable or a good way? I mean, you might say, would you say the women? I mean, everybody's sinning in this story. Sin is the punishment of sin. But what happens is, as we start to try to identify sin in the world, we can create villains and monsters, and then we can act as if, this is when we disconnect the concept of sin from understanding Jesus Christ. We disconnect virtue from Jesus Christ. We can look at others and say, we need to fix the problem and the problem is them. I was listening to a podcast this week again because I remembered it from when I'd listened to it a couple years ago. And uh, it's, it's actually, there's a, there's a book that was found in Edmonton in, 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 a, in an academic library, but it's from the 1400s in Europe. And it's a manual from France that they say was the start of um, uh, burning witches at the stake and this kind of thing. They call it the foul manual. But it was a priest, a guy named Jean Tincture. And he wrote this book. And, he, and basically what he said is there's these group of people living in France and they don't seem to believe things properly. But the manual said that they're witches. And it's in like 1459, 1460 in France. But then what happened is the minister writes this big manual saying, and actually the chapters are titled this way, This is going to show how the sin of the Waldensians is worse than the sin of whatever it is. The sin of adultery or worse than the sin of this. And so the manual basically outlines their sin is so heinous and so sinister. And then what do you think the rest of the manual does? So it's okay to kill them. It's okay. Actually, it's your Christian duty to get rid of this sin. And hence you have what became, even into the United States, the burning of so-called witches. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. If you can begin to act as in your struggle against sin, if you begin to act towards your family, towards other people in this world, particularly to the, words, to the ones who you think are wrong, if you act towards them in an unchristlike like manner, 
you have disconnected the idea of virtue from Jesus Christ. And we, at that point, we don't understand what sin is. This kind of thinking keeps us immune from self-reflection and from growth and from repentance and from Christian thinking. Jesus, when asked about morality and the law, he, basically, he told us that, that the Christian call is impossible but compulsory. Unachievable, yet what is put before us. Christian centuries are filled with conquistadors and crusaders, inquisitors, witch finders, bigotry, burnings, and fear preached from the pulpit. Libraries on fire and science suppressed with vicious battles between armies, supposedly by those committed to brotherly love. We have to come to terms with this. It's because we disconnect the concept of virtue from Jesus Christ. All in this text that we read this morning, all of these people scrambling around, shaking their heads at how bad things are, and not clearly not seeking to love one another. How do you get from Jesus to here? However, the words again, our concepts of justice, human rights, kindness, self-sacrifice, and love, can we grow in our concept of sin and wrongdoing that, that this, these concepts could actually be more reflective of Jesus Christ himself? And so this, that the call in our lives is to live lives of goodness, holiness, righteousness, to accept this call as impossible but compulsory. And I'll give you just a few uh, things you can do as we move to closing the sermon. Firstly, listen to everything that Jesus says and look at his life and his encounters and consider who does he shut out. Which sinner is the one that he he treats in this kind of way of, I can't have anything to do with this person because they're bad. It doesn't happen. Secondly, that we need to be aware of our language. The first one assumes that you're going to read the Gospels. You have to read the Gospels over and over and over again. And you have to interpret the rest of Scripture in light of Jesus Christ. I would not want you, I mean this, I would not want you thinking that you can understand Judges 19 without the Gospels. Secondly, be aware that we need to be aware of our language. Our language gives us away. I can tell what you think of sin by how you think of other people, by how you talk about who else is wrong. I can tell. And sometimes it's pretty juvenile how we can think, how we speak of sin and how we speak of evil. If you have a more developed view of right and wrong, sin and virtue, than you do of Jesus Christ and his presence, then you need to grow in this faith. If you have a more developed view of right and wrong, sin and virtue, than you have of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life in this world, then you need to grow in faith. One comes first. And we need to understand that among the two least interesting things we can say is that things used to be better or from now on, things are going to be better because of us. We're not in the historical idealism business. And finally, the call for all of us is to put our hope in Jesus Christ. Whatever we think of recent events in our own country, whatever we think of in terms of politics, leadership around the world, our hope is not in so-and-so or so-and-so. Whether you applaud or shake your head, our hope is not in money. Thanks be to God. 
We're still, I mean, some of you are still struggling with that. Our hope is not in, our hope is not in money. Our hope is not even in education, though I, we strongly believe that people have the right to be educated. And, and a, one way of oppressing people is to deny them that right. Our hope is not in credentials. Our hope is not in achievements. Our hope is not in housing in Vancouver, thanks be to God. Our hope is not in things in our efforts getting better. Our hope is not in the world being so bad that a a judgmental God will come and wipe out all the baddies and we'll be left standing. Our hope is not in our job. Our hope is not in our marriage. Our hope is not in our children or our health or our looks, thanks be to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Our hope is not in who we know. Our hope is not even in our spiritual gifts. Our hope is not in anything but in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if your hope is in Jesus, there are no good old days. And when we have this hope in Jesus Christ, we can finally be what's called, and the world is in desperate need of this. And when our hope is actually in Jesus Christ we can finally become what is called evangelical. Good news. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is in Jesus. Ours should not be a faith of the past, though we're grateful for the past. And ours should not be a faith that hopes in human effort into the future. Our hope is in Jesus Christ in whom all things will be reconciled. Maybe right now is the best of times. Maybe right now is the worst of times. I don't know. And guess what? I don't care. Apart from Christ, I have no good thing. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak this truth, your word to us. Thank you for even these difficult texts. May we see you, Lord Jesus Christ, and grow in you and put our trust in you, we pray in your name. Amen.